The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, brought to you by the founders of Saunders Studio. Artificiality is a podcast dedicated to understanding the emerging community that is humans and machines. We take the latest in the human side, decision science, psychology, and design, and put it together with advances in artificial intelligence and big data so that you can understand how to work better with machines and your fellow humans. We founded Saunders Studio to help people be more human in the age of AI. We're on this learning journey too, so we strive to find the frontiers, to ask the best questions, and stay curious. We interview some of the top minds working at the intersection of humans and machines and make sure we have a few laughs along the way. Have you ever wondered what makes people different from machines? Well, one thing is curiosity. Curiosity is something that drives humans, but as yet, not machines. And one person that knows humans and curiosity is Michael Bungay Stanier, coach extraordinaire and well-known author of the best-selling books The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap. We first met Michael at the House of Beautiful Business, a very special community that gathers in Lisbon each year to make humans more human and business more beautiful. All three of us will be back at the house again this November, and we highly encourage you to join in person or online. In this interview, we wanted to find out what makes a good coach. According to Michael, it is being able to stay curious just a little bit longer. Perhaps that is what will make humans better coaches than AI for a while yet. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. We're uh, psyched to have you on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. It's not quite as funky as having dinner together in Lisbon, but it will do. Yes, <laughs> it will have to do today. Yes. We make do with what we can. Yes. Exactly. So one of the things that uh, that you left us with after that dinner with in Lisbon is this strong sense of um, coaching has almost got the wrong name, that it should be called curiosity. Right. And at the moment, it's like that's it's such a scarce thing to find um, people who stay really curious. Mm. And we work a lot with people who are digging into data and into AI and trying to make these things really be predictive. And And, and how you stay curious during a decision process is constantly challenging because you've made up your mind about <laughs> right. what you want the answer to be or what you think the answer should be. Yeah. And in some respects, going all the way in this podcast to the other end of the spectrum and saying when two people are communicating – no machines at all. What is it about um, the coaching process that is so reliant on curiosity? That's a great question, which, of course, is the standard phrase if you don't have a fast, snappy answer. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm just buying some time here. Um, 
the question is what why why is coaching reliant on curiosity so there's a couple of there's a lot to unpack there the f- the first is i love your initial point helen which is you know coaching comes with so so much baggage for so many people i mean some people love it and are all in on coaching but lots of people are like i don't know what coaching is and it's a bit weird and it's a bit kind of touchy feely and you know i'm a i'm an engineer or a data person doesn't feel like my world and a big part of the work I'm trying to do just generally in the world is so look, let's unweird coaching. <laughs> let's not make it some sort of, it's not a black box so much as a kind of pastel colored incense sense box and just make it realize that what coaching is as a behavior is can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? So Helen, you're exactly right, which is like, let's just put being curious at the center of our interactions with the people in our lives. And coaching has as, as its premise, this idea that it's worth digging into some stuff and poking around a little bit and, and getting curious to find out what's really going on. So curiosity has as its basis a few key tenants. The first is if you're in conversation with somebody and they go, hey, Michael, here's my problem. Number one is you actually don't know what the real problem is yet. And this will be familiar to some extent to all designers because you always know that the brief's not the brief and the challenge isn't the challenge. You've got to push into it a little bit. You've got to get curious as to what's the real challenge here that's going on. So that's the first benefit of curiosity, which is you spend time trying to figure out what the real challenge is. And honestly, if that's it, that's already an enormous win because we waste vast amounts of time and energy and life solving the wrong problems. The second place where curiosity can be really powerful speaks to those kind of cognitive biases that Helen alluded to. And to put it bluntly, your advice just isn't as good as you think it is. I mean, and our, our brain is wired to tell you how awesome your advice is. Just like you think that your driving is above average, you think your advice is above average. And the truth is your, your advice is biased and limited and blinkered and slightly out of date. And honestly, the only good advice you have is something I can look up on Google much faster than you can tell it to me anyway. It's not saying that never give advice. It's just saying that your initial advice in particular, your default advice, isn't as good as you think it is, even though every part of your body is screaming, my advice is awesome. But then the third piece around the power of curiosity is the invitation to allow somebody to grow and learn and become a fuller version of who they are. Um, you know, because there will be times where you're like, look, I know what the real problem is. We're really clear on what the real problem is. And two, I have an outstandingly good, I mean, a stonkingly good idea that I want to offer up. And, and I can't though, wait. I know. And, and I, so this is just like, I'm like, I know what to do. I've got the perfect intervention here. But then the bigger question you've got to ask yourself is what best serves the bigger picture, this situation and this person? Is it to offer up this stonkingly good idea, and, and it might be, or is it to allow them to figure out the idea for themselves? Because when you do that, they grow in competence and in confidence and autonomy and self-sufficiency. 
So you're constantly balancing these different commitments, which is on the one hand, a certainty that your advice is brilliant, an anxiety because time is short, uh, a, a, a hunger to be helpful and to add value to conversations. And then on the other side, this insight that you don't really know what the problem is. Your advice isn't that great. And potentially the best thing you can do as a leader is to allow somebody else to keep ownership of what's going on and grow and increase their, literally increase their capacity and their potential. Because when you ask a great question, new neural pathways form in the brain and they just get smarter. Yeah, it's almost like the process of of thinking about it for yourself actually does create the knowledge. And if right. someone doesn't allow you to do that, then you cannot create that next layer of knowledge. Yeah, and if you doubt that, think of all the advice you've been given in your own life and how much has just flown in one ear and out the other immediately. Like you've forgotten almost all of the advice that you were given because honestly most of it wasn't that helpful. And the advice you hoped would be helpful – wasn't that helpful. <laughs> and then some small bits of the advice was helpful. But if they said, can you figure this out yourself, you're much more likely to get it, to learn it, to have it stick, to to put it into action, to feel that it's yours. And that helps you and it helps everybody. I love the, your third point on curiosity. There's a uh, there's a concept that I, that I love about um, community and, and building um, uh, communities of knowledge, which gives, uh, a, which is structured around this idea that um, people have a place to put their own knowledge. Right. And so, if you're curious, you approach someone with curiosity. You're inviting them, and you're giving them a place to put their knowledge. What do you think? You know, how might you approach this? What do you think yeah. the problem might be? Uh, invites them into this, you know, this this place where they get to put their knowledge and feel like they are contributing. And even sometimes um, discover their knowledge <laughs> because one of the amazing things about coaching is you ask a question and the person has to stop and think and then they, they find something that wasn't there before. Yeah. So it, 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 it's, it's a generative act. It's not just uncovering knowledge that's already there. It's bringing new insight about themselves and about the situation. So both internal and external knowledge grows with a great question. Well, that surely too is like, um, and you didn't you say that about the, the situation, understanding the situation and what you said before about how people don't, they sort of skip over really understanding the problem. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, that's one of the things that we're wrestling with a lot right now is how much time do you need to spend understanding the problem? When do you really know you understand it? Because mm. you're right, people just waste a huge amount of time jumping to a solution without understanding the problem. Well, there's a, there's a very famous quote from Einstein around, you know, if I had an hour to deal with a problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes trying to figure out what the problem was and the remaining time trying to come up with the answer to it. And, you know, Einstein was onto something. <laughs> he, had, he, had a good, a, he had a good moment or two in, in figuring stuff out. Um, I, um, I don't know there's a, there's a set answer to that, Helen. I do know that in my own experience on both sides of the conversation, being coached and, and coaching somebody, there'll be a time when I'll go, okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? And they'll say it and there'll just be this kind of, it's like they stick, they stick the dive or they stick the, you know, you know, when gymnasts do that kind of double, triple flip thing and then they land and they just go thunk and they stick the landing. 
there's a way that sometimes when you you come to it, you just feels like you've stuck the landing, and you're like, oh, <laughs> that feels like it's it. Mm. But what you should do is you should just check it with yourself and with others. It's like, okay, wow, that sounds important. Does this feel like it's the real challenge? And Helen goes, yes, goddammit, this is the real challenge. I'm like, fantastic. We're here at last. Now what do we want to do about it? And actually in, in, in the coaching world, what's amazing is if you can find the real challenge almost at least half the time, the, the solution presents itself. Because if you know what the real challenge is, you're like, oh, if that's the thing, I know exactly what needs to be done right now. So you don't even have to spend a whole lot of time generating ideas because you've done such a brilliant job at actually defining what we need to take on and figure out. Do you think it gets harder to um, stay curious about the problem when we're surrounded by answers? You know, there's data is everywhere. Yeah. Google's constantly telling you the answer. Your phone is constantly reminding you of the thing that you have to do, which is therefore the problem of the moment. Yeah. Is it harder to stay curious in that world? I'm not sure about the 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 increased hardness of it because it's been hard forever. <laughs> I guess it's, that's it's, true. It's just been it's been we have a whole system of training people to seek the answer. You know, that's what school is. It's like get an answer and get the right answer and get the answer that the system wants you to get and you'll get rewarded for that. There's a quote I love, which is um, curiosity is the purest form of insubordination. And um, what, I, what I love about I'm doing that. I'm some mental gymnastics around that. Yeah, I'm having yeah. Like, <laughs> Okay, I get you. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Because yeah. if you're curious, yeah. you're like, you're going, really? Is that, is that, is that really the, the way this works and the way it should work? And if, um, you know, I don't want to get kind of Orwellian slash Pink Floyd the wall too much here, but you know, oh, no, school, bring school on the Pink is, Floyd. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, it's like school is a, is a lot about will you conform? Well, are, we are preparing you to get ready for your working life, and we really like foot soldiers. We like people who are willing to understand a hierarchy, follow orders, behave in a way like that, and. Um, curiosity is a way is, is disruptive to that. So, um, you know, that's, that's why organizations often are like, we're very pro curiosity, but, but not just now and not just here, right here. And now, if we could just get the work done, that would be much preferred, but sure. Mm. Curiosity sometime soon, for sure. It's coming. Yeah. After three o'clock on a Friday. That's, that's, that's your curious. But but until then, please do this this way. And please talk to the customers this way, because the robot's telling us that if you answer the sales call this way, you'll be most effective at driving sales. Yeah. And, and it is this tension because, I mean, organizations do flourish on elegance and efficiency and kind of ways of figuring stuff out. But you're, you're kind of trying to find the right mix in your organizations between it, when, when's curiosity appropriate and when's execution appropriate. Mm. And it, it, the, the, I was listening to an um, Alison Gopnik talk on a podcast recently, and she's from Berkeley and an, an expert in child development. And uh, she made this, she's been working a lot in AI and doing a lot of collaborations in AI. And she made this wonderful comment about how she, she, she really thinks now about the, 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 
the child's brain and the adult's brain are, are kind of completely different brains. Right. And, um, and, and when she said that, I thought, well, that also speaks to something around curiosity. I mean, right. that is such a natural thing with children. Yeah. And you, you kind of, you have it beaten out of you socially a little bit, but also biologically in this process of conforming. Yep. But, and it Agreed. is hard to stay curious. So you have to sort of go into that, we call it beginner's, you know, beginner's mind yep. for adults, but it's actually kind of a child's mind. And I, I, and the questions that, that you put forward in your books and how to stay open and how to stay curious, really simple guides to sort of keeping your mind in that place. Right. Um, what happens on the other side when you get the answer, the listening part of it? So when when you're when you're being asked the question and you discover the answer, is that is that what? Well, happens no. There? When you're when you're the when you're the coach and yeah. you get the you get the answer back, listening itself is now like if questioning was the was yeah. the, the the skill to develop, then listening becomes the next skill. I mean, I talk about fake active listening. Because lots of us have been taught about the power of listening and we've been talked about active listening and we're like, okay, active listening. And you're like, how do you do active listening? Well, you tip your head to the side. This looks more curious uh-huh. and you, uh-huh. and you look concerned yet interested and uh-huh. yet worried really and yet cool. caring yep. and you, and you make small grunting noises of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sure. <laughs> and there can be a whole different kind of drama playing out in your head. It can be, you know, when will they shut up? When can I tell them my answer? You know, did I take the fish out of the freezer to defrost for dinner tonight? I mean, is that my email going ping? All sorts of things are going on in your head. So listening is a manifestation of being present with somebody. And and sometimes I see people go, I've got to listen. And then the, 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 then the kind of tail starts wagging the dog, which is like, I'm going to prove to you what an awesome listener I am. So one of the irritating things for me when I'm, if somebody's coaching me is that if I say something and then they spend five minutes playing back what I just said to them, I'm like, dude, I know <laughs> I said it <laughs> and I'm delighted that you heard me, but it feels like we're now in some performative act for you to prove how well you've listened to me. And that actually is more about serving your status as a coach or somebody who's trying to coach me rather than actually being helpful for me in a conversation. What is always helpful for me is when I have, I feel like I have somebody's full attention. Like they're just there and they're present with me and they're being with me and they're, and they're, they want to support me. They want to walk next to me. That's the power. And, um, because I feel that they're, you know, I, you know, I'm being seen and I'm being heard, not just at a literal level, but at a kind of slightly more metaphorical level as well. Um, but you're right, most of us suck at listening. Um, you know, there's research that says doctors, GPs, general practitioners, um, on average, interrupt their patients after about 18 seconds. And honestly, I think that gives doctors a bad name because it makes it sound like they're the only ones who do that. But I'm like, no, people, <laughs> people mm-hmm. interrupt each other all the time. They're like, yeah, 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 I got it. Yeah, yeah, no, just stop talking. I'm going to tell you what I think now. And that willingness to be just quiet and present with somebody is is powerful and not that common. Do you think that we've got, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about what are machines good at, what are humans good at? 
Yeah. And we, that's a that's a very important discussion that we have when we when we teach. Do you think that humans? But I've never thought of this. Do you think that humans have like a really laser focused ability to actually figure out when someone's paying attention to them? Well, far be it for me to speak on behalf of all of humanity. Oh, um, no, please. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know when I'm being paid attention to. I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like I can, in a conversation with somebody, I could, if somebody said on a scale of 1 to 10, how present is this person with you right now, I could give a pretty accurate reading on that. Um, and... You know, I'm going to guess that I'm not the only person in humanity who's got that ability as well. So I do feel there's a way that we can even on. I mean, it doesn't have to be in person. It's like through Zoom or through on a phone. Mm. I can just tell when somebody is is with me most of the time. I mean, I'm sure I get mm. it wrong sometimes, but um, we do pick up those subtle cues. I wonder how hard that is to quantify. Right. There's some of these things that we, we know we can see whether someone's looking directly at us. Now, with Zoom and cameras, it's a little bit yeah. difficult. But, but across a, 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 a field, you could tell if someone's actually looking at you. You, can, yeah. you, you sense something. You have an intuition about somebody's body language and the, and the, and the way that they speak, especially once you get to know them yeah. and you know whether they're really paying attention or not. Um, I wonder how hard that is to quantify in a way that you could get a machine to truly understand that. One of those sort of magical moments of interpretation of humans. Is that kind of what you're getting? Well, I, I was actually just thinking about it really from a, a genuinely human perspective, because with all of this extra talking on FaceTime and Zoom and Teams and what mm-hmm. have you, it's really obvious when someone's doing something else. <laughs> I know, and, it is. And they're, they're, like, yeah, and, sure. No, no, I'm really listening. Uh, just just yeah, do a little yeah. typing here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's amazing. And you can even tell. Like it's really meta because you can even tell when someone's trying to hide it. Oh, totally. It's, I mean, I, it's I like you're not that good at that. <laughs> I literally put my hands into view when I'm trying to talk to remind me to put my hands to be present. Like I do this so I can't cheat <laughs> because I there's one part of me is wanting to to just whip out an email or two while YouTube blather on. I'm like, yeah, they're talking amongst themselves. <laughs> Just so I'm going to quickly going. do something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'll keep I'll keep eye contact as I just type over here. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I, well, I guess there is though. The, going back to what you were poking me at, the, the, there is an, an aspect of this with machines. So we see, uh, you know, a lot of people really like these um, simple chat app. But they're not that simple. Actually, pretty complicated apps that that sort of give them a someone to talk to. It yeah. could be, um, you know, a, a mental health app. There's a lot of yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy type apps that people rate are really helpful and that's great. But it's almost like you could take your book and program in the questions and just hit repeat on some of the questions. I think you could. If you, and, and, I, and I sort of think, well, what's wrong with that? Um, and so what's the limit of, like, how do you, how do, would you think about automating this experience for people so that it still is authentic and meaningful and helpful to the individual, but a machine is doing you yeah. know, a portion of it. Because I think I'd sit and talk to a machine for quite a while if they were going to say, what's the real challenge for you here? Oh, I, I could probably answer that five times in five different ways and actually get exactly. to the bottom of something. 
Oh, look, I reckon that a, a large percentage of coaching interactions will become machine-based and soon because, you know, in, in the coaching habit, I'm like, here are seven questions and here are some, here are some scripts based on those questions. And it's, it's a logic tree. And you could absolutely, because the thing that coaching does is create space for you to think and reflect. That's, that, that's, it's, it's got this kind of human side, which is to feel seen and acknowledged and feel like you have a champion. And it's to have time to just think and figure stuff out. And, you know, the very, very first book I, I wrote um, is a book called Get Unstuck and Get Going on the Stuff That Matters. It, it's kind of out of print because I self-published it, and it's ridiculously complicated because it's like um, it's like one of those uh, kids' flip books, you know, that have like a ballerina's head and a soccer player's oh, body yeah. and I a tap those. dancer, and you can kind of just mix them up. Well, the way you the way you work with this book is you you set yourself a, a challenge, and then it had like. I don't know, 500,000 combinations of flip sections. So you open them at a random combination and it would offer you a quote, a story, and a, a model, each with a question attached. So it would provoke you to think differently about your challenge. So it was like randomly generated questions to provoke you to think about whatever your challenge was. So it's, a, you know, it's like a proto app or I don't know, some version of a way that that's a, that can be turned into AI. But Part of the success of the coaching habit is the, the the limited number of questions that still work a lot of the time. And I can absolutely imagine that if I'm building a relationship with some form of AI, that 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 AI I don't know anything about AI, but I'm so I'm making all this stuff up. You can tell me whether it's fantasy or not. But first of all, the AI measures the tight the pause between me answering uh, the question being asked and the answer, because that tells me a little bit about kind of what's processing in my brain. I mean, it might be that I got distracted, but mostly if there's a if there's a longer wait, it means that we're onto something interesting. So speed of answer tells me something about the quality of the conversation I'm having. And you know, my favorite questions are things like, "So what's the real challenge here for you?" And then, "And what else?" And then, "And what else?" And then the question, is there anything else, is a question that AI could use to kind of go, do we loop back or do we carry on? Or I don't know what the, the right word is, but there's an absolute way that this could be a, a tool. And I'm kind of surprised somebody hasn't taken these seven questions or not already built something around this because I think most of the time that can, that can work really well. Well, it's certainly more private too. You know, yeah. We, there's a lot of people that don't want to talk to someone about these things because it's a, yeah, it's a security more private, breach. on call, and honestly, most of the time better than most coaches because most coaches feel the need to add value with random questions and stupid ideas and opinions all in the, all in the quest to go, I'm trying to be helpful here. But sometimes you don't want that. You just want the structure to kind of help me figure some of this stuff out. And I still think there's a, a place for sure for – a human coaching, which is around a, a kind of a being seenness, 
which I don't think AI can do quite as easily. Um, just to what they were saying before about how would it, a machine know when you're being fully present with it. But in terms of the structure of, a, of curious, curious questions, I think that's just I think that's just going to be a default setting on standard AI machines soon enough. I think you make a great point about um, the pause. Um, I love the idea that measuring the pause after being asked a question tells you something. Um, that makes such intuitive sense, but I'm, I, I wouldn't have I, that wouldn't have I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been able to think of that necessarily. But the other part is a machine can be incredibly patient. Right. A machine can actively listen for as long and until its battery runs out. Yeah. Right. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it will never jump in. You know. It will just wait for you to deliver the answer. Yeah. And, you know, there's sort of this idea when people talk about machines and what kind of jobs are they going to take and what are things that humans are going to be able to do. And one of the first things that everybody comes up with is um, jobs that require empathy. And, you know, and one of the things that we discovered quite early on when we were digging into AI is actually, well, yes, but there are some jobs that require empathy that actually humans aren't really great at. Like, you know, a machine can listen to the same story from your grandparents mm -hmm. a thousand times and never get frustrated, never get irritated that they've heard the same story again and again and again yeah. and again and again yeah. and again and again, right? Um, and sometimes there's some of these roles that a machine could actually be quite good at because of that ability to be uh, infinitely patient. Absolutely. And I love that. So you're measuring patience in a number of ways. One is the, the number of times you hear a story. You know, um, yeah, we've all been with with people who who like to go over and over and over the same thing and at a certain time you're like for god's sake person would you stop talking about this you're killing me here i know yeah, what happened it i know how the you, story ends and you're, you're we're like, married like she said that to me many times i've heard that story well not sweetie. so not, not, <laughs> no, I, I don't really do i'm gonna true. actually get defensive but, but no we but, don't but, actually but, do that well no we'll, we'll make we'll, make <laughs> we'll do that on other people well sure we'll make jokes about my mother telling the same story <laughs> yeah. about my childhood hi mom um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, your, your mother's a nightmare i i i know that um, hi, Mum. but but there's also there's also patience in the in the in the very moment i mean I was uh, I I was just on this podcast with Brené Brown, which was kind of a total thrill, and and unexpectedly she's like, "So coach me." I'm like, "Ah, okay." <laughs> <laughs> it's like no pressure. Don't screw this up, Michael. Um, <clears throat> she really made you quite vulnerable, then, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it was a moment, um, and you know, I asked Brené a question. And you hear it in the recording. I, I love that they kept it in. There's just this really long pause. And by long, it's like four or five seconds. But that feels like an eternity <laughs> when you've asked a question and you're waiting on the other side of it. And because I've been doing this for, for you know, years, I've got enough discipline to stay quiet. But honestly, inside my head, it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> panic. <laughs> Do I feel the space now? Ah! Um, and, um, you know, and it's through, it's, honestly, it's like, it, you know, you, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to the level of your training. I, I have enough training that I kind of manage to hold the silence. But most people wouldn't have, but a machine would have without, without breaking a sweat because they're, mm. they're patient in that moment. Also on the longest scale that you're talking about, Dave. Mm. What about difficult 
um, conversations, difficult things where someone, you know, really has the facts wrong or something's like really distorted or deluded. And because uh, we, we're working, you know, we think a lot about how do you how do you find quote unquote truth and data mm. um, when it's only machine readable, but you've got to back up to the humans that um, like might want an answer. Yeah. Is there a role for this technique in, in helping teams or group or, or an individual through um, almost being coached by the data? Yeah. I mean, this is really tricky work which is like trying to get people to disbelieve something that they strongly believe um, because there's all that kind of counterintuitive stuff that the more you present facts to them, the more they embed in their wrong position. <laughs> so it's not a question either as an AI solution or as a human solution to go, no, 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 let me explain the facts and then you'll see <laughs> that how, see how wrong you are that that, yeah. that actually that's does such not a comfortable work. journey <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so there are there are structures that have been proven to help people not all people but some people kind of understand that they might be going wrong and you know a simple one is so you're saying this explain to me how that works and that is a really good idea in principle. It's really hard to do in person as a human. Oh my God, it's hard to do that because you're like, you're, you're, you know, you're nuts. <laughs> you're so wrong. I can't, I'm not even sure I want to be involving you. And, you know, you can take it to the next level, which is like, you're so wrong that I find you offensive and I'm going to, I'm going to fight you on this because that's what my lizard brain wants me to do. So it takes real discipline to, structure a conversation that allows a bridge to be built between where you are and where they are. And hopefully, because you're working on the assumption that you've actually got a, a better set of data than they do, a bridge that they can walk towards the better set of data. But I'm sure that there's also AI structures that could, could hold that space. Because this, because I love what Dave's saying about patience, which is the ability to hold the space and keep the conversation open and unfolding is something that we don't do that great a job at as humans because we we want there's one part of us that wants closure and just to bring it you know shut it down wrap it up move it move it on um and i think those hard hard conversations um could be part of that Helen, the other place I went with hard conversations is kind of difficult conversations in terms of how do you how do you have your ideas challenged and provoked? So now I'm just making AI stuff up. I'm like, it'd be really great to at the start of a conversation, your your AI voice goes, Michael, how provocative would you like me to be in this conversation? Would you like? It's like one is entirely supportive and on your side five is provocative and challenging and will push you to the wall for and you could you could set the the you could set the tone and the terms of your conversation before getting into it 
So there's something. Yeah, I love that idea. <laughs> I do too. I feel like we should be channeling Brene here a bit of well, like, yeah. how open are you right yeah. now? Well, I think we actually that. toyed with the idea at some point early in our relationship of actually just writing it like ski runs. Like, this is a yeah. black diamond conversation coming yeah, that's up. A- that's yeah. a great, yeah. a great, whatever, you know, it's like a shared, a shared language around what type of conversation we're about to have is really helpful. Um, you know, there's a concept um, called social contracting. Social contracting is when you're starting to work with somebody, you have a conversation about how you're going to work together before you have a conversation about what the topic is. <coughs> so... <clears throat> So in a social contracting conversation, you're like, you know, how do you like to be challenged? Um, if you're going, if the relationship's going off the rails, how do we, how will we acknowledge it and recognize it? Um, it when you had a really good conversation or a good relationship with somebody in my position, a position like mine, what did they do? What did you do? You kind of talk, you, you construct what a good relationship is and where the vulnerabilities of this relationship is. And that allows you to rebuild and rescue and make more resilient the relationship as it unfolds. And it would be great to have that as an an AI experience, which is you get to negotiate the relationship with the AI rather than feeling it's as some sort of neutral and always right voice in the sky. That's fascinating because you're right. If you, if you can set the terms, um, it reduces any sort of, automation bias up front and it sets it cal- you can calibrate your trust in it that's right and and it you know if part of the conversation around ai is the unconscious bias to it and the fact that it always feels neutral but it never is neutral what this does is it just makes more explicit the kind of the 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 playing field that you're working on can i go back to there was something you said earlier on about um uh, part of the value of coaching uh, is to create space for reflection. I think yeah. you said something along those lines. Do you, so removing from the, I, I understand the, how a coach can provide that and the, and the moment of actually joining a coaching session mm. creates context for that space. Yeah. Out, outside of that sort of hour interaction, right, with someone, do you have thoughts about how individuals and also how groups can create space for reflection, and I'm thinking in particular around truly understanding the problem that either yeah. an individual is happening or a group is trying to tackle. But how do you create that space for reflection? It's such a beautiful idea, but I'm trying to, you know, think about it. Well, it's to recognize whatever whatever the context is, how quickly you're moving away from thinking about the problem into thinking of solutions or debating answers or whatever it might be. So. You know, uh, Amazon gives you a great example of that, which is, you know, the I'm not sure how far this goes through the whole Amazon organization, but at that senior level with Bezos, he's like, we start each meeting and everybody's written a memo and we spend the first 20 minutes of the, the session, the meeting reading the memos. And then when we've had read the memos, we're then into a conversation about what the memos are about. And that is a structured approach to be more time figuring out what the challenge is. And in fact, forcing people to write a two to three page memo forces them to get better at reflecting on the challenge and what's really going on and structuring that. So that's one tactical demonstration of that. But um, my 
my overall design as a facilitator is to to break up the mass conversation as much as I can. So I'll go, all right, turn to the person next to you and have a conversation. And that can be in a Zoom call, that can be in a large you know, me speaking to 8,000 people at a keynote. It can be um, in a team meeting uh, of, of six people. But I'm like, let's break the collectiveness and turn and have a conversation with the person next to you or, or spend five minutes writing something down or go for a walk and then come back in 10 minutes and talk to me what you think about what the real problem is. It's about just acknowledging that you want to try and create that time for thought and then going, right, how do I break the momentum and how do I remove the distractions? And depending on the context, I've got different tactics or different ways that I might think about doing that. We've got uh, a good a closing question because we're, we're getting close to, to uh, breakfast time for you. Yes. <laughs> um, so if you've got two pieces of advice for AI designers, what would they be? Well, this will be random because I'm no AI designer and I don't know, even really know what AI designers do. So I would, I would first of all, own the, own the element of that title of designer, not just AI, but designer. And I would be looking and building portfolios of designers that you admire so, you know, is that, an, is that an artist? Is that a musician? Is that a programmer? But who are your designer role models and what do they bring that inspires you to be a designer in terms of their creativity and their humanity and their perspectives? And how do you realize that your, your, your work is not, a, is not neutral, but it is, it is, um, a creative act. And I think that understanding who your role models are help you see other people who've owned their design as a creative act and allow you to bring yourself to that work, which means you also start have a better chance of seeing the the gloriness and the messiness <laughs> of, of who you are in, in bringing that. So that's, that's probably the first piece of advice. And then probably the second piece of advice is be skeptical of any random dude giving you advice on how to be an AI designer because it's probably because <laughs> it's not going to be as good as he thinks it is. <laughs> it probably isn't going to be that great. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. Well, I'll say that I'm skeptical, but I, I love your first answer. I think that was amazing. Um, yeah. And I think that it's an never un- had anyone. Say no, that. and it's an unusual answer for people in the AI field. I I I, I could guess at where it's coming from in your history. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it is one that I think would be unusual. So I appreciate you contributing that. That's my pleasure. It's a really good idea. Um, well, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Um, we have greatly enjoyed it and we can't wait to be in person again with you soon.